First Thessalonians chapter 5. We come back to what is uh, really an extremely compressed section of uh, this letter from the Apostle Paul where he issues a number of commands and imperatives for the church. And uh, we mentioned uh, or we introduced them last week as 15 commands that Paul understood would create a culture of growth in every church. And I'm not, spend, I'm not sure how much time you spend thinking about the dynamics of spiritual growth. Perhaps you are at a stage in your life where you just sort of try to put things in neutral and think that you're just going to sort of coast to the end, that you've got enough victories and enough knowledge behind you. You really don't need to progress that much more. Or maybe you're younger and you sort of grew up around this stuff and you have learned a number of doctrines and learned a number of things and can win a couple of arguments and so you just, you sort of don't even think about spiritual growth anymore. You don't really think about progressing from where you are. Or maybe, uh, maybe you have a desire. Maybe there is something genuine within you uh, longing for spiritual growth, but but you're not really sure how to achieve it. You look around and you want to have wisdom and you want to have stability and you want to be useful to the Lord. You see it in the lives of other people, but you don't quite know uh, what it's going to take to get there. Well, it's not just automatic. Spiritual growth is not something you just take for granted. It is, it is produced in certain kinds of environments. I mean, if you go to the Old Testament, we're told very explicitly, right? You have to be like a tree planted by streams of water, meditating on the Word of God day and night. You have to do certain things if you want to experience the kind of flourishing that takes place in the life of every believer as it should take place. Well, in this passage, what we have here is really a whole list of things, a whole a whole list of responsibilities that you have and I have that Paul gives to us, gives to the church, because he understands that these things are imperative for any Christian and any church that wants to grow. And this is what his desire was for this particular church. He said it over and over again in First Thessalonians. He says back in chapter 3, verse 10, he says, look, we pray for you. Uh, most earnestly, night and day, that we might see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. And then in, in chapter 4, verse 1, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that you, as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. See, this is Paul's desire. He wanted them to progress. His yearning was to see whatever's lacking in their faith to be supplemented, to be added to, to be, to be uh, extended out so that it's growing continually more and more. He says in chapter 4, verse 9, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, and that is indeed what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia, but we urge you to do this more and more. Later on in 2 Thessalonians, he says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of everyone for one another is increasing. 
See, Paul understood that this is what a church is supposed to do. This is what a church is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a place where you see continual growth. It's supposed to be a place where you can look at your life right now and you can look at your life a year ago and you can say, I am more loving, I'm more forgiving, I'm more gracious, I'm more worshipful, I'm more sacrificial, I'm more whatever than I was a year ago. That I'm progressing in my faith. This is what Paul says is my earnest desire for this Thessalonian church, as it is every pastor of every church. He desires to see people grow. And it ought to be a desire of you not to become complacent, not to sort of settle into past knowledge and past victories, but to see your love grow, your faith grow, your ministry grow, your worship grow, whatever it might be, to see that happening. Well, how's it going to happen? I mean, how are you going to get there? Uh, We can sort of assume the essentials, prayer and Bible study. You cannot get there apart from those. The scripture is very clear about that. But the scripture is also clear about something else. That you can't get there apart from participation in a healthy body of Christ. See, God doesn't desire you and he didn't design you to grow independently of the body of Christ. In fact, he says that he has given the church so that you could be equipped for every good work. He has given to you the various members of the body of the church. You're not designed to be an eye without a foot or a hand without a leg or whatever it might be. You're not designed to try to grow independently. You're designed to be a part of a body and a healthy body. And this is what Paul understood. This is what he desired for these Believers, Remember, he had been with them just for three short months, and then he had been ripped away from them, run out of town. And as he's on the run, he's constantly concerned, constantly thinking about them, constantly uh, yearning to know whether or not they are progressing in their Christian faith. And so he writes this letter because he had heard word back that they were doing well, but he didn't want to settle with that. He wanted to press them on to more. And so he writes the letter with a number of things that we've been looking at over the last year. But as we get near the end, he just sort of dumps, if you will, this list, this very condensed list of imperatives on the, on the church. He doesn't have time to expand on them and elaborate on them, but we do, thankfully. We do. And so we've been taking the time to take this compacted section and to decompress it, to open it up, to connect it with all the other places of Scripture that talk about all these themes so that we can understand what it is that creates a culture of spiritual growth in every church. You cannot bypass these. You cannot bypass these. You do so to your own peril. And so what is it? What are these commitments and these responsibilities that you have and I have that create a culture of spiritual growth in the body of Christ? Well, we began last week looking at the first one, very important one, and that is the responsibility to identify leaders according to their labor, according to their work. Paul says in verse 12 that it is our responsibility that we ought to see to it and and make sure that we respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. We talked about this. This word respect is really the word for know. And so Paul is just simply telling us to know them or more importantly to acknowledge them. 
And he tells us to acknowledge who, not, not any title, not any position. He doesn't give any label to these people. He talks about what they do. Lab, uh, we need to acknowledge those who are laboring diligently, those who are uh, guarding or defending, that is, they're over you in the Lord, and those who admonish or correct you. These are the spiritual leaders in your life. And one of the keys to having a healthy church and a place where spiritual growth is happening, one of the vital keys is, first of all, putting the right people into place in leadership. And so that's Paul's first call for us. Properly identify spiritual leaders according to how they are currently serving. doesn't matter if they have a title or not. If you put a leader... In the midst of a group of people, they are going to lead. They're going to do these things. Well, today we move to a second of these commitments and responsibilities that create a culture of spiritual growth. And and Paul gives it to us there in verse 13. He implores not only that we identify and recognize these leaders, but in verse 13, also that we esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So first, you identify them, and then secondly, you have to remember to esteem them. You're to think of them not only highly, but exceedingly high. The word is huper ek peruso. Huper ek peruso. It is a word that basically has the idea of exceeding all boundaries. Paul sort of stacks up this this word with a couple of different prefixes that are just talking about how you go beyond all boundaries. Going beyond what would be expected. Going beyond what would be normal in your esteem. This is the way Paul wants you to think of these kinds of leaders. And he brings this up because he understands that few things will ever threaten the health of any church. Few things will ever threaten the the context and the culture of spiritual growth as a breakdown of relationship between people and their leaders. He knows that. And so he lays that out for us right here. And what he's talking about here is that you think highly of them, that you fill your mind with those thoughts that are best and are true, that you grant them trust. And this is essential any time that you have any kind of really uh, a group of people working together because there's always going to be, when you have multiple people, there's always going to be gaps of some sort. Gaps in understanding, gaps in information, communication gaps, whatever you want to call them. There's always going to be these gaps and you will have opportunity to fill the gaps with something. You will fill them either with Criticism, suspicion, lack of love, you'll fill the gaps with something like that. Or when those gaps come, you will fill them with love and esteem, forgiveness and patience. Someone says to you, a leader says to you, you go up and ask them something, they say, hey, I'll get back to you on that, and they never get back to you. It's happened to you, you've probably done it to other people. At some point. And that happens and there's a gap. Between what was promised and what was delivered. And you have an opportunity at that point. To fill that gap with something. What are you going to fill it with? You're going to fill it with 
grumbling. You're going to fill it with complaint. You're going to fill it with lack of esteem. What are you going to fill it with? Well, Paul says you need to fill it with high regard. You need to fill it with esteem. You need to fill it with love beyond all boundary, beyond all sort of expected limitations. I mentioned this last week, but we seem to be in a time in our culture where almost no one wants to extend that kind of esteem to any leader. It doesn't matter if it's a president or a policeman or a pastor. No one wants to extend that kind of esteem to any leader in this culture, in this day. We seem to be in a time when our culture is telling us that we're supposed to fill those gaps with conspiracy, with suspicion, with doubt, with anger, with rage. Telling us to do basically the exact opposite of what Paul's asking us to do here. And people, people take that on. They take it on certainly in the broader context of our world, but then they insert that. They bring that sometimes into the church. It's not long if you take the time just to jump on an internet search. I mean, you can find anything. All kinds of websites that are almost exclusively devoted to these kinds of suspicions and rumors and, and uh, doubts and questions and whatever it might be. There are so many today who really are nothing more than modern day sons of Korah stirring up followers against their leaders. And like Korah, they seize on any disruption, any ambiguity, any common obstacle as some evidence of failure, of disregard, of corruption, or whatever it might be. If there's a lack of water, they seize on that. If there's a a delay in getting to the promised land, they seize on that. If there's not enough meat, they seize on that. And they, they launch a campaign against their leaders in rebellion and criticism. They seize on that like, uh, like w- whatever Korah did. They seize on whatever's going on in their context and they create suspicion against their leaders. And they always frame it in the noblest terms. They always frame it with some sense of a higher cause, a call to purity. Now, they're they're going to be the ones who are going to lead the charge to, to purity But don't be deceived. It is nothing but age-old rebellion. And it's nothing but contrary to what Paul's calling for here. What he's calling for is a high regard and esteem of your spiritual leaders that goes beyond anything you might expect, that goes beyond all boundaries. And you see similar kinds of calls Throughout the pages of Scripture, Paul tells Timothy that he needs to consider elders and leaders worthy of double honor. Hebrews, the writer tells us, remember your leaders, those who speak the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now, I've been in the church for probably 30 plus years A little more than half of those I've been in leadership, but the other half I wasn't. And I've been in situations where people grumbled and complained against leaders. I've been in the pew and had my own share of disappointments. And 
I can just say I've never once had a notion to take part in any rebellion against any leadership in any church. Never. And I never would do such a thing. Uh, That kind of thinking really, I think, is foreign to most believers, to most Christians, but not to all. And Scripture gives us some clear indication about why that is. Why this kind of rebellion and why this kind of disregard and this kind of lack of esteem arises between people and their leaders from time to time. And the Scripture talks about it over and over again. It's not, a, it's not an obscure subject. And so you get an idea of why some people might sort of rise up against this clear command of Scripture... And we could list several of them. I'll give you just eight of them I thought of this week as I sort of studied this issue through the Scripture. You could, you could go beyond that. But you can usually trace this kind of lack of esteem. Whenever you hear it, whenever you hear the complaints and the grumbling, you can usually trace it back to one of these eight issues. First of all, just old-fashioned pride. Just simple pride. Certain people who just struggle to submit to anyone. And you see it in their life. It isn't always just in the church. You see it broadly in their workplace, in other ways. They just don't submit to anyone. They, if they have a boss, they have a hard time submitting to their boss. Or a lot of times they don't, they don't even want a boss. They just want to sort of be their own person. Their own, they want to be in business for themselves or whatever it might be. And it's just pride. They cannot submit. 1 Peter 5.5 5 says, be subject or submissive to your elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This is the basic character of spiritual maturity then. But something that some people struggle with, particularly if they're gifted, if they're intelligent, if they have abilities... They fill their head with knowledge, but they never seem to arrive at the spiritual maturity that they need to in this area of humility, and it ultimately undermines their usefulness in the kingdom. It undermines their usefulness to the Lord, because they never find a way to slay their pride. They're like a a Diotrephes in 3 John. They simply desire to be first, to be preeminent. They really can't submit to anyone's leadership, and so they always want to be in charge. And consequently, they struggle to maintain the kind of esteem that they ought to to their leaders. Secondly, and closely related to that, is simply a disdain for correction. That would be a second reason why someone might struggle with esteem for their leaders. There are those who cannot esteem their leaders because they have received a rebuke. They've received correction. Proverbs chapter 5, the writer of Proverbs is warning his son about the foolishness of of rejecting correction from, from those above him. He warns him how he could end up at the end of his life and he could say in Proverbs 5.13, Oh, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. So there are just certain people who cannot take a rebuke. They cannot take uh, that kind of sharp correction in their life. They don't understand that God has sent these leaders into their life 
to say these things at, at critical times in their life to grow them to the next level of their spiritual life. So when a leader comes in and he has to say a difficult thing, he has to point out a flaw, he has to expose some, some uh, lack of, of uh, faithfulness or whatever it might be, whenever that happens, there are some people who lose all ability at that point to respect their leader because they can't take a rebuke. You know what the Bible says about a wise man? A wise man will love a rebuke. Proverbs 15 couldn't be more clear. It's one of the passages that I think about and go to over and over again, talking about this characteristic in our life that a wise man hears and understands. He says, Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. This is a a difficult thing for some people. They never quite get it. They they kind of imagine that being in a church is all about, you know, being, uh, being patted on the back and being given their accolades and being praised for what they're really good at and being, you know, sort of set up because of all their, their knowledge or whatever it might be. But they're not prepared for this. And so it takes place, and people can't get over it. They cannot look any longer with esteem on the one who corrects them. But you remember, in verse 12, Paul says, this is how you identify a leader. They are not only those who labor diligently and are over you in the Lord, but they're also those who do what? They admonish. They admonish. In other words, if you want to be in a place where no one's admonishing you, then you're asking to be in a place with no spiritual leadership. Spiritual leaders admonish. And hopefully, you're a wise man who receives. Thirdly, there are some who cannot esteem their spiritual leaders because they just simply harbor unforgiveness. They take offense at a leader. They simply can't forgive. They They claim, they would maybe tell you that they understand forgiveness. They might could articulate it in in a simple way. But they assume that somehow, despite everything they know about forgiveness, that somehow it doesn't apply when it comes to leaders. I mean, I've heard this through the years. Yeah, yeah, I understand all that stuff, but you're held to a higher standard. Really? I am. I understand that. But aren't you? Also held to a high standard? Forgiveness? Jesus teaches it himself. He taught us whenever he forgave Peter. Remember Peter who so boldly proclaimed on the night of Christ's betrayal? He so boldly proclaimed that he would never deny Christ. That he would never do such a thing. Only to turn around and do what? He did it three times. That is a failure of incalculable magnitude. And yet Jesus does what? He extends grace and forgiveness and he commissions Peter to go out and feed his sheep. 
So many people can't do that. They have a leader who disappoints them and they, they cannot find the power to forgive them and to esteem them and to trust the situation to the Lord. And so whenever they find these gaps, they, instead of filling it with grace and filling it with forgiveness like Christ did with Peter, they fill it with, with anger and with resentment and with unforgiveness and they no longer can fulfill what God has called them to do when it comes to their leaders. Fourth, there are some who struggle to esteem their leaders because they have fallen into favoritism. That is to say, they just like one leader more than another. They're like those in Corinth who spiraled downward to the point where they were saying, I am of Peter and I am of Paul and I am of Apollos. And Paul says to them in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 3, he says, you are still of the flesh for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and now behaving in merely a human way? For one who says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? I mean, the way you're behaving has no evidence of the Spirit, has no evidence of spiritual maturity, has every evidence of being exactly like the world. And so by forming some allegiance to this particular leader or that one, you foster, he says, jealousy and strife among yourselves, and you fail to show the proper esteem toward all of your leaders as God intended them. As Paul will later say, look, Apollos, uh, excuse me, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. You have all these leaders, they have different strengths, they have different They have different weaknesses. They have different aspects of their ministry. But you have to step back and recognize that God is using all of them in the way that He chooses. Fifthly, some people struggle with esteeming their leaders because they have unrealistic expectations. This is another common one. They simply think of their leaders in unrealistic terms. They expect superhuman standards. Instead of seeing them simply as fellow believers battling with uh, sin and weakness and battling through this life and dealing with their own failures and their own disappointments and their own burdens and whatever it might be and all the other things that go into life, they, they seize on that breaking point wherever it might be and they they pour into that gap all of their disappointment, all of their criticism Paul takes on the Corinthians because of some of these same kinds of tendency. He tells them in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, This is the way you should regard us as slaves of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And then he says this, Moreover, it's required of a steward that they be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. Because it is the Lord who judges me. So whatever personal issues they had with the Apostle Paul, whatever whatever disappointments they had with him in terms of his lack of performance as a leader, in terms of whatever kind of failure they thought he might have had, he says, it means very little to me, whatever your disappointment is. 
Unfortunately, though, it meant a lot to them. And so he's telling them, look, your disappointments, your judgments against me are not my concern. They are the Lord's. And they shouldn't be yours. They shouldn't be your concern. They're in the hands of the Lord. And whatever their lack of disappointment, whatever their level of disappointment, their lack of esteem for Paul, Paul's saying, look, this is just the way you need to think about us. We are, we are caretakers of the mysteries or caretakers of the word of God and slaves of Christ. We're just simply doing his work in his way on, in his field. And he's the one who brings about the increase. In fact, he'll go on there in 1 Corinthians to talk to them rather sarcastically, saying, uh, saying to them, you, you've already become rich. You've become kings. And, and we would that you reign so that we would rule together with you. But I think God has exhibited us apostles, last of all, as men sentenced to death because we, because we have become a spectacle to the world. We are fools, for Christ's sake, but you're wise. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we are held in disrepute. Paul says, look, that, I'm, I'm not going to fight that. I, that's just the reality of who I am as a leader. I'm just a slave and as a slave, you're going to see the weakness and you're going to see the disrespect and you're going to see the failures. You're going to see all that stuff. And I know you would have it a different way. I know that you think of yourself as a king and I know you think of yourself as, as honorable and I know you think of yourself that way, but that's not the way we are. We are a spectacle to the world. The scum of the earth, the refuse of all things. In fact, later on in 2 Corinthians, Paul will be speaking of himself. He, he says, look, there was a messenger of Satan that was sent to buffet my body and, and to bring me low before God. And he says, so I reached the point because of this where I was happy with insults, with persecutions, with whatever kind of trial might come into my I was happy because when I'm weak, I'm strong. In other words, Paul says, I'm not going to battle your accusations of my weakness. I'm just going to accept it because that's who I am. I am weak and I am foolish and I am a disappointment to myself. But that just means more glory to Christ. More glory to God. Paul says, this is the way you need to think about us. Slaves of Christ and caretakers of the Word of God. Sixth, some people fail to esteem their leaders because they fail to really account for the sacrifice that ministry takes. People begin to take for granted the kind of ministries that take place around them. They don't realize the level of sacrifice that many people are putting into the ministry, the kind of time that they take away from their own leisure, their own hobbies, their own families, their own pursuits, whatever they might be. And the reason that these leaders do this, the reason that they are engaged in the ministry are, is not for personal, uh, personal 
acclaim and personal gain. They do it because God has laid a burden on their heart. And so Paul tells, for example, the Philippians in Philippians 2, do all things without grumbling and disputing so that you might be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I might be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. And even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. And likewise, you ought to be glad and rejoice with me. Paul's saying, look, I, I don't mind being poured out. I don't mind being, being absolutely expended for the sake of your faith and and uh, your growth and your spiritual progress, just rejoice with me in that. Understand that this sacrifice I make, I make gladly. He goes on to speak about his friend Epaphroditus a few verses later. He, he says, I am, I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you might rejoice at seeing him and that I might be less anxious. And so receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his own life to complete what is lacking in your faith. You ought to honor those kinds of men. You ought to honor them. They stick their neck out. Epaphroditus was one who went all the way to the point of death for the sake of those who were under his care. They lay down their life for whatever is lacking in the ministry. Like the Apostle Paul who told the Ephesian elders, I don't account my life as anything as value or precious to myself. If only I might finish the course and the ministry that I received from the Lord to testify to you of the grace of the gospel of God. Later he tells Timothy then to honor or double honor those men who sacrifice and work hard at preaching and teaching. Some people just, they just sort of assume that the ministry taking place around them just sort of happens. It, is, it does, doesn't involve hard work. It doesn't involve sacrifice. It doesn't involve labor. It doesn't involve early mornings and late nights and lots of prayer. And it doesn't involve strain and stress and anxiety. They just think it doesn't have any of that to do. With, uh, that doesn't have anything to do with any of it. And so they just don't fully think about this. And consequently, they don't give the kind of honor, the double honor, To their leaders. Seventh, some people fail to esteem their leaders because they fail to see maybe the way the Lord's gifted them. I mean, leaders have to be gifted. They have to be given certain uh, capacities by the Lord. They have to. They're not serving out of their own strength. They're not serving out of their own wisdom. They're not serving, you know, out of their own cleverness. They did, the whole house would crumble, right? And so in order for someone to lead spiritually and to see spiritual growth, they have to depend on the Lord and the Lord has to fill them as he says he does with whatever the gift of teaching, the gift of administration, the gift of of discernment or however you want to describe any of those gifts. He has to fill them with all these gifts. And so some people just simply fail to 
to realize the way the Lord might have gifted a particular leader and that, and they, they think about their leader sometimes in sort of monotone way. They, they, they think about every leader has to be just like this. They have to look just like this particular leader. And they, they look around and they see other leaders who are not gifted in the same way. Their leadership might look different, and so they just struggle to esteem those other leaders. But Paul says in that same passage, 1 Timothy 5, that you're to give double honor not only to those who work hard at preaching and teaching, but also those who rule well. They're gifted in leading and ruling and managing. And it's not a task that everyone can equally handle well. It's not a tasks that everyone is equally equipped to do. But when you have leaders who are gifted by God to rule well, you give them the esteem and honor that the Scripture calls for. And then we get, finally, eighth, people fail to esteem their leaders because they simply have a low view of the church. Leaders are not necessary. Leaders are optional. And the church is optional. The church as an organization is optional. You, ha- you, can go, so you can sort of plug in and get involved with a church if it's got the right programs and the right kind of activities, but you could just as well go down to the soup kitchen or you could just as well go down to some other volunteer organization where you can pour your life into some cause, something that gives you some sense of personal gratification because you're doing something good and making a difference. And so the, the church is expendable in their minds. It's just one of many options that you have. And they fail to understand, they fail to look at the church for what it is, the body of Christ, a living and breathing organism that they are inextricably tied to, where God has placed them into the church, the way he's placed them into the church, and they don't have the option of decoupling themselves. The church is unlike any other organization on the face of the earth because it is the only organization through which Christ promises that his life will flow, that he will supply what every joint and every ligament needs by the growth which comes from him. And in that church, it's very clear, Paul says, that he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some shepherds and teachers to the church to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. So leaders, whether they are evangelists, whether they are missionaries, whether they are pastors and teachers, they are given by God to you. And yet people ignore them, they reject them, They bypass them. They sort of imagine that they have some other notion about how they're going to be equipped and how they're going to grow and how they're going to make spiritual progress that is outside of God's paradigm. They don't need that equipping from those leaders because they can go get it somewhere else. They're going to read books on their own and they're going to read something on the internet on their own. They don't need these these stuffy and inconvenient and sometimes disappointing leaders. They're just going to sort of do it all independently of their leaders. 
Or in some cases, they're just going to do church independently. And so they end up giving little honor to the role the Lord has established for these leaders. And all of that, all eight of those reasons, and several others we could list if we had the time, for all of those reasons, people fail to esteem their leaders, or their esteem is very limited. And they do not understand, nor do they practice what Paul tells them to do here. Esteem your leaders beyond all boundaries, highly in love. And particularly, Paul says, you esteem them highly in love. Why? Because of what? Their work. He's not talking about the quality of their work. That, that certainly is an aspect of it. Some, some guys are, are more gifted than the rest of us, and some of them are used to the Lord, and you esteem them because of the quality of their work. But I really think Paul's talking here about the nature of their work, the importance of their work. Esteem them highly because what they do is important. It has eternal impact and consequences. It is work that is explicitly commissioned by the Lord. Everything that you do, everything that I do, everything we put our tasks to, our hands to, to every task we put our hands to, we do it as unto the Lord, right? Every work has significance and is redeemed for the sake of the kingdom. But this work, this gospel ministry work is explicitly explicitly commended by the Lord. And so Paul's focus here is on that. In other words, this is not an issue of personal loyalty. You're not esteeming them because somehow you're committed to them. But you understand the role that God has placed them in and you do not want to disrupt that role. You see that God is using them, some to plant and some to water, but he's using them to bring about his increase in his kingdom. And it is that work that you keep in mind. And so when you develop some complaint or some dissatisfaction with some aspect of their overall ministry, you, you forget about all those things that the, the Lord is doing through those leaders and you focus on that one kind of thing and you develop some kind of resentment toward them and you no longer esteem them because you've discovered some, some flaw, some weakness, and you never take into account all the other work that the Lord is still doing through that person and you begin resisting that leader and you are resisting the work of God. Disparaging that leader. Undermining that leader. Without ever taking thought of how you're undermining the kingdom because of their work. You might say, well, yeah, but if you, if you knew how they had disappointed me in this way or that way. If, if they hadn't done that, I would esteem them. Well, the whole passage here assumes that you must be commanded to do this. In other words, it assumes there will be temptations not to esteem. It assumes that there will be flaws. 
I mean, if leaders were perfect all the time, you wouldn't need to be commanded to esteem them. It would just flow naturally like the air you breathe. But Paul knows there will be challenges. He knows there will be flaws. He knows there will be blind spots. There may be things that are difficult for you, decisions you don't fully agree with. Well, you're to back away to gather perspective on the overall work. And even when you're tempted not to esteem them, your responsibility is to accept the role that God's given. Recognize that God has placed them where He's placed them. Until they disqualify themselves or God removes them in some way, you are to esteem them beyond what might be expected, beyond normal boundaries. Esteem them for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of God's greater kingdom, for the sake of the work. The writer of Hebrews says it this way. He says, particularly talking about leaders as it relates to their work, he says, obey your leaders and submit to them for their keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account and let them do this with joy and not with groaning for this would be of no advantage to you. It's not, it's not adv- advantageous to you. That you have your spiritual leaders always forced to groan under the constant criticism that's leveled against them. They bear all of the burdens that come along with whatever is going on in their ministry. And then they come to you and you just sort of pile on more burden with your complaints, with your refusal to follow, with your, with your refusal to submit. And the net result, Paul, excuse me, the net result, uh, the writer of Hebrews says, is negative for you. It's of no advantage to you. You might think you're going to sort of take down this guy who has disappointed you or whatever it might be, but Paul says that's not an advantage to you. And particularly within the scope of a ministry, when a leader is spending so much precious energy trying to extinguish your concerns where you have no ability to fill those gaps with grace and forgiveness and kindness and whatever it might be. Those are hours that are no longer spent in prayer, evangelism, preparation to teach, counseling, whatever it might be in the ministry. And so Paul says, this is what your responsibility is. You want to create a culture where spiritual growth is happening? Free your leaders up by esteeming them. I'm not saying look the other way when there's sin in their life. I'm not saying you can't confront them. Paul's very clear in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Look, if you've got a, a leader and there's a, witnesses to their sin, you need to, you need to rebuke them. But we're talking about all the other stuff that people just hold on to. Even after they, the, the flash of some disruption happens, they just hold on to it no longer esteem their leaders and they undermine the spiritual growth of the entire congregation. Well, there's a third commitment that Paul gives us that creates a culture of spiritual growth in the body of Christ and it comes in the same verse right after what he just said about these leaders. And he just simply adds it with no transitional word, but simply this, be at peace. Be at peace among yourselves. So along with identifying your leaders and along with esteeming them, 
Paul tells us to maintain peace among ourselves. You're, you're, you're to do this. And you can probably understand why Paul added this right at this point. Because the number one thing that often disrupts peace in a congregation is divisions over leadership. And so he's telling them no matter what your disappointment, no matter what your groaning and your grumbling might be, you have a responsibility to be at peace among yourselves. Or there's a significant number of scholars who who actually think that the the verse ought to be read, be at peace with them, that is, with your leaders. It really comes down to, uh, without getting too technical, it just comes down to a breathing mark on a particular Greek word, how you read that. It could go both ways, but both are true. You have a responsibility to be at peace among yourselves, and you have a responsibility to be at peace with your leaders. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture is in James chapter 3, one of the most clear and discerning pieces of wisdom that you'll ever receive. James 3.13, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and do not be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What's James saying? He's saying that godly wisdom is not primarily demonstrated, not primarily identified by all the things that you know. It's not even really identified by your ability to point out the faults and the failures of other people. You want to know where godly wisdom is first of all demonstrated it's in the process of making peace he's saying it is through the process of making peace that your greatest growth of righteousness comes a harvest of righteousness a harvest of righteousness is made in peace by those who make peace some people never get to reap that harvest because the moment they have a conflict what do they do they flee They just run away. Rather than working through the process and finding peace and being a peacemaker and reaping the rewards that come from that, they don't ever stick with the process. And so consequently, they never really reap that kind of harvest, the harvest that comes with self-examination, the harvest that comes with humbling yourself and recognizing the logs in your own eye as you're dealing with the specks in someone else's. They never really go through that process, and so they never really reap the full harvest of the fruits of that because they never engage in being the kind of peacemaker God's called you to be. Listen, a culture of spiritual growth will be a culture where people are engaged in maintaining peace. Because there's a direct link 
between your ability to forgive others and your understanding of how much you have been forgiven. Jesus says it over and over again. A direct link between your ability to forgive others and your understanding of how much you've been forgiven. You can't forgive someone 10,000 talents. You can't forgive someone 100 talents. You have no idea then how much you've been forgiven. You see, your greatest growth in righteousness comes through peacemaking. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Jay Adams says, forgiveness then is the oil that keeps the machinery of the Christian church running smooth. It is, it is that peacefulness that you're constantly pursuing, which is at the same time constantly crucifying you. In fact, it's interesting if you just read the very next verse in the book of James, right after he says a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace, he immediately says, why then do quarrels and fights come among you? Okay, you got, you're responsible for making peace. Why do quarrels and fights come among you? What is it that keeps you from being at peace with someone else? Oh, I'll tell you what keeps me from being at peace. If you, if you, if you saw them, if you heard them, if you knew this or you read this or whatever it might be, I'll tell you what keeps me from being at peace. No, that's not what James says. Is it not this? Your passions, your lust, your desires that are raging war within you. You desire something and you do not have it, so you murder, you covet, and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. Where does it come from? It doesn't come from the other person. Quarrels and fights come from the idols in your own heart. And so you understand why peacemaking is essential to spiritual growth within a church. Because without that commitment to maintaining peace among yourselves, you're never pressed into those, those hidden recesses of your heart, those idols that you've held on to and cherished for years, decades sometimes. And you've sort of skirted around them and you've played the game in their Christian life, but you've never been forced to, to deal with them. And then you find yourself in some crisis and some, some conflict and some lack of, of, um, of fellowship or whatever with someone else. And you're pressed and pressed and you are under the mandate to make peace, which means that you're under the mandate of dealing with those lusts and those desires and those passions and those idols in your own heart. And that's why a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. That's why Paul tells the Romans, if possible... So far as depends on you, live at peace. You can't always dictate what someone else does. You can't always dictate if they walk away, if they sort of go their own way, they want nothing to do. You can't always dictate that. But as much as it depends on you, live at peace. Live at peace. 
so much that goes into a culture of spiritual growth. People don't think about it all the time. They just sort of imagine, they kind of see these, these Christians out there who are useful to the Lord, who are, being, who, who, are, who are demonstrating stability and demonstrating wisdom, and they see that, they might want that, they might long for that. But it's a lot more difficult path than they sometimes realize. First of all, it involves putting your pla- yourself in the place where you have identified the true kind of spiritual leaders. And then second of, all, second of all, it's your commitment to esteem them. Thirdly, it is your commitment to live at peace with them and with others. And there are many other characteristics that we will, Lord willing, have time to get into in the coming weeks. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. I want to say something to you today. If you're not at peace, you're at conflict with someone and you came here and you're upset with a work coworker or family member or whatever it might be and, and you're just fuming and thinking about how you're going to get back at them. I want to really challenge you with something today. Jesus Christ came to forgive and he forgave all who will ever place their trust in him. That's a lifetime of sins, of disrespect towards God, of rebellion against God, of thumbing your nose against God. That's a lifetime of accumulated ills and sins against God. And he forgave them all forever and ever. And you struggle with forgiveness If you struggle with forgiveness, it's because of one of two things. You either have heard that and have forgotten that, or you have never met the Savior. Your life is filled with bitterness, it's filled with turmoil, it's filled with whatever it might be, and and you are just spiraling out of control with all this anger and all this other stuff because you have never tasted forgiveness yourself. Jesus offers it to you. He says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Come, he says. And if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive them. Our invitation to you today is to know the Prince of Peace. That you would come, that you would confess your sins to him. And that you would find the freedom of forgiveness that comes through the Savior. Father, we're grateful for the time together today. We're thankful for the truths that come from your word. And we recognize you have placed many leaders around us and over us. And we're so grateful for them. We're reminded again of the responsibilities we have, the blessing we have from those men who serve us. Lord, I I pray that you would help us as we approach them to approach them with the proper humility the proper sense of our own weaknesses and faults, the proper sense of esteem and respect for the sake of their work. Lord, we do not worship them. They are not our Savior. But you are using them as you choose. And we will yield to you to show them our love, to show them our support where we can. And Lord, we will trust that you will use that in our life. And you'll use it for the sake of the kingdom to bring about glory to your name.
Help us, Lord, to live at peace as much as it depends on us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.